Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we take a week or two to re-listen to each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums and then we get together to reassess them one at a time. This time we're up to episode nine, Nashville Skyline, which was released in April 1969. So, Rich, uh, as usual, to get us started, we um, take a look back at our relationship with the album in question. Uh, So um, what's your history with Nashville Skyline? This one is actually very close to my heart, this as an album. I've got a distinct memory of, of hearing it. I lived in San Diego in California for a year while studying at university. And then I moved back to Britain and uh, I moved back to Birmingham and obviously there's nothing wrong with Birmingham but certainly as a 21 year old Birmingham didn't quite have the same allure and the grey industrial rainy kind of landscape didn't compare particularly well with living kind of six or seven blocks off of the Pacific Ocean and someone gave me a copy of this very very soon after I kind of arrived back in Birmingham and It made me dreadfully homesick for a place that wasn't my home. It made me very, very, very homesick for California. And I listened to it endlessly. And I don't think, I mean, obviously I I was a Bob Dylan fan anyway, but I don't think that I kind of associated this necessarily with being a Bob album. It was just something that I found very comforting at the time. And as I say, I listened to it repeatedly And so it holds a a very distinct place in my emotions and I enjoyed kind of revisiting it. But I don't almost listen to this in the same way as I listen to the, the earlier albums, as it were. This is just, it's just something that I'm very, very familiar with, almost like a kind of comfort blanket kind of thing, if that makes sense. How about you, Mark? What's your story with this one? Well, I was probably a similar age when I first heard it to, uh, to you, but in, in quite different circumstances. Uh, so I do remember that I must have taped it probably from the library, hold my hands up there. And I had a tape with Help on one side and Nashville Skyline on the other side, which was quite weirdly appropriate, actually, because there's a hell of a lot of country and western on, on Help, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. um, so they did sort of go together. But I never really listened to it that much. I was much more taken with Help, actually, at the time. But then one day I was uh, admitted to hospital and the only entertainment I had for the day or two I was in there was um, this this tape on a Walkman. So I obviously played it to death and, and, and I appreciated Nashville Skyline a little bit more after that. Certainly songs like um, I Threw It All The Way came through for me then when I was kind of trapped with it for, uh, for, a, for a period of time. So this last couple of weeks has been a bit like revisiting that time, having uh, having the one album on a loop. But I've got to say, um, although I did appreciate it that time, it's not one that I've gone back to a lot. It's always, it's always been one that's just sort of occasionally reared its head, but I've never had the same kind of intense relationship with it that I certainly have had with the, the last three or four albums that we've looked at and that I've had with many of the ones that we'll be looking at later. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, we were just talking uh, a little bit before going on air, as it were, about how it's almost a bit of a problematic album in some ways in the in the Bob Dylan canon because it sort of doesn't fit in the same way in, in the kind of progression and pattern and I know that Bob Dylan always wrongfoots everyone all the time but we were kind of really trying to unpick this idea of how much is this a country album really how much of it is an Americana album and 
is it just sort of down to the fact that it has Nashville in the title, for example? I mean, that obviously brings its own baggage with it. And so, I mean, I don't know, do you want to kind of expand on that a little bit, Mark? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, as you say, um, he'd recorded it in Nashville. But of course, this was the third album that he'd produced in Nashville at this point. So it wasn't the first time he'd been down there. And interesting that the three albums he did record there were so very, very different. But of course, this is the one that's most associated with that traditional Nashville sound. So he, he recorded this in the February of 1969. The album came out in the April, as we know. And it was one of his most successful albums, propelled particularly probably by the appearance of Johnny Cash, who of course was a, a major star in his own right, and by Lay Lady Lay, which probably to this day is still Bob's most successful single, I'd say. But I did think it was quite curious, Rich. Um, you know, in the, in the Dylan mythology that we... Um, we enjoy digging into. We always talk about his disappearing act in 1967. And of course, we know that actually he was very productive during that time. But I just realized, listening back to this, what, <laughs> what happened in 1968? It seems like he didn't really do a tremendous amount at all. Because of course, John Wesley Harding had come out at the end of 67. He didn't tour in 68. So what, what on earth was he doing? <laughs> Uh, can you shed any light on that, Rich? I mean, I'll hold my hands up and say that, uh, that that I wasn't there, so I can't vouch for this. I have read bits and pieces in books, but I think that the the kind of accepted wisdom is that he was he was in Woodstock. I'm actually reading at the moment Small Town Talk, the the book by Barney Hoskins, which is fascinating. Actually, a kind of portrait of Woodstock. Um, he was, I believe, still in Woodstock at this moment in time, and generally living this or attempting to live this quite kind of conventional, dare I say it, family life, really. He cut his hair short. He was keeping pretty regular hours. I mean, there, there are reports that he, would, he had a very strict daily schedule where he'd wake up at kind of six in the morning, read and kind of study until about 10 o'clock in the morning. And then he'd, he'd go about and do family kind of stuff. I don't know, take kids to school, pick them up from school, all of this, that and the other. And so it was almost kind of like time out of this, uh, what had been this quite frantic rock star sort of schedule. But of course, how that kind of fits in with with Nashville Skyline as, as an album is anyone's guess, really. Well, it's certainly not anything that I can kind of proffer an, an answer to. I don't know. Maybe it's a kind of reflection. I mean, because as, as is well documented, the songs on this, are I don't want to say twee, but they're they're not the kind of acerbic, angry young man of previous albums that we've we've discussed. And so maybe that kind of domestic kind of harmony and supposed contentment maybe contributed to this, this kind of slightly more middle of the road Nashville record. What do you reckon? Thoughts on that, Mark? Well, that's one of the things that really comes across on this album, doesn't it? Even on a cursory listen. Even on John Wesley Harding, where we talked last time about how he'd stripped back uh, his arrangements, he'd stripped back his, his lyrics, and even the, the song structures had been stripped back. Nevertheless, as we discussed at length last time, there's still a real depth in there, isn't there? And a, and a kind of, I don't know, a, a turmoil that's expressed in a much quieter way than on Blonde on Blonde, but is still very, very present at the heart of the record. And you've certainly got none of that here, have you? We're in a very very different place and it certainly does suggest that kind of domestic contentment as you were as you were alluding to so so shall we kick off just just thinking a little bit about this shift in style because i guess there's there's at least two really big things that leap out at you isn't there so first of all he's he's actually doing something that your man on the street would recognize as singing it's a very new vocal style on this one again and also of course as we said at the start he's got this real nashville 
country instrumentation going on. I think all the songs are arranged in that style, aren't they? So yeah, very different stylistically. And it's something that leaps out at you immediately. Do you have any, any reflections on that, Rich? I do. I mean, I've got a few theories. Doubtless, they, uh, they will be shot down. Um, at, at this point in, in time, I, uh, I just say thank you to all of those people that have contributed questions and ideas on, on Twitter. Um, as always, we're not going to be able to discuss all of those, but there have been a few, a few theories, one, one of which was this idea about the kind of Gordon Lightfoot connection. Gordon Lightfoot, obviously a very, very uh, notable Canadian singer-songwriter, also managed by Albert Grossman, who and and Bob Dylan was reportedly a very very big fan of Gordon Lightfoot. So I forget now who it was um, who, who who suggested that maybe Lightfoot's influence um, is is evident on this particular record. I mean that's one that that could be debated endlessly. I mean there is also the the new vocal style, the idea that he had quit smoking he quit cigarettes <laughs> we mentioned last time having both seen uh, shadow kingdom that that uh, the sort of rejection of of nicotine in in 1969 for the, for this particular album well clearly he's uh, he's gone <laughs> over that and gone back the other way if the <laughs> if the video for shadow kingdom is anything to go by but i mean that will that will affect your your singing style i don't know for sure whether that's the case though because there have been those people who've suggested that it was just a kind of convenient soundbite that he came out with so yeah a, a couple of possibilities there and then of course the the country instrumentation it, it's definitely country instrumentation you've got the piano i mean obviously piano isn't synonymous necessarily with country music but the pedal steel very much is i mean i love the pedal steel um allegedly it is second only in complexity to the uh, to the orchestral harp to play, but I love I love that sound, and of course it's indisputably country, isn't it? But I mean, one of the things that we we were talking about prior to recording this actually is it looks like country music on the front of it, on the cover of this record. It kind of looks like a country album. It's got the word Nashville in the title, which makes it very much appear like a country record. It's got pedal steel and these quite tight arrangements, particularly the endings of the songs, are in most cases very structured, very thought out in a way that they're not on a lot of his other, um, certainly on John Wesley Harding, there's just a sort of fade out or a stop playing. But is it country music or is it Dylan kind of presenting uh, as a country artist? I mean, what, what, what do you reckon, Mark, about, about that? Yeah, really good point, Rich. But just before getting into that, I totally agree. It's a it's a tremendously easier listen. This album, isn't it? His voice is is so listenable. Perhaps it's not as strong though as it was on on previous records. Um, and we'll get into that, I think, a bit later. But of course, you've also got this tremendous accompaniment. And I mean, he's he's literally playing with the best country musicians in the world, isn't he? So it's not surprising that this is a marvelously arranged wonderful listen as you say and you know you'd never complain if this if this came on while you were sitting in a bar <laughs> tremendously entertaining to listen to and it's not surprising that it got a lot of radio play and and did indeed go on to get a lot of sales but yeah going back to the business of uh, visit country music i think it's really interesting isn't it this question of what is country rock because right from the beginning country music or country and western music was a big part of what went into the mix to create rock and roll in the first place wasn't it and you've got obviously right at the very start the likes of Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis uh, are almost country artists, you know, at the same time as being rock and roll pioneers. So the idea of country being 
part of a mix is, is, is nothing new. And the other thing is, of course, um, and, and perhaps I hadn't really appreciated this before going back to think about it while listening to this album this time, is that actually Nashville's skyline is quite late to the party, isn't it, in terms of the development of this new country rock. It already had, of course, Sweetheart of a Rodeo by The Birds, which was tremendously celebrated the year before. But even prior to that, you'd had Graham Parsons plowing his own furrow with the uh, International Submarine Band, which I think their album did absolutely nothing, but it, it was recorded in the, the summer of 1967. So that's a long time before Nashville Skyline by the standards of uh, how quickly things were developing in the 60s. So yeah, it's not pioneering record in that sense. And I think if you compare it to the stuff that Graham Parsons had been doing and also the stuff that Gene Clark had been doing in his his project, uh, Dillard and Clark, it's not even really got that kind of true country heart, has it? I think some of the arrangements sort of the power of the delivery on things like Hickory Wind, on a lot of the stuff that Graham Parsons went on to do with the burritos. That to me is the real core of, of kind of, that's where the heart of the country comes into country rock. And I, I don't hear that on Nashville Skyline. But what you do hear is those beautiful countryfied arrangements. And perhaps that's where we're getting into what would become this dominant middle of the road country rock that dominated a lot of the 70s, where it's really pretty straightforward rock songwriting with that kind of country tinge, which is almost an affectation uh, rather than something that's really at the core of things. I think you've probably nailed it there because this is, it's almost Bob Dylan masquerading as a, as a country artiste, as it were. I mean, I think it's important to remember that he's taking from every facet of American music, country, folk, blues. I mean, you look at his back catalogue, it's replete with all, uh, diving into all, all, all different aspects of that, all different genres. And he kind of mixes them all together. I mean, obviously, we call this podcast Bob Dylan American Shakespeare. <laughs> a little bit more difficult to crowbar uh, Shakespearean references into uh, into Nashville skyline, but I think it's just an example. If you're looking at both of these artists side by side, they take from all different aspects of life, all different styles, all different genres, and it's all kind of they'll they'll throw it all in and and they'll mix it all up and and it, and it works when you look at a song on Sweetheart of the Rodeo though like I Like the Christian Life for example by the Birds I mean that is out and out country when you listen to Graham Parsons sing you believe him in the same way as you do George Jones for example or any of those kind of really preeminent country artists and so it's almost like a, a confidence trick I suppose in some respects I mean I don't want to kind of do Bob Dylan out of the, the the country credentials that he doubtless deserves here. But I consider this more of an Americana record. It's got plenty of aspects of the country album, but ultimately it's him kind of kind of going down that avenue of it. And we as we know, um, he will of course return to a slightly more rocky approach in in the reasonably near future. I think the Again, we can't, without the aid of a time machine, go back to 1969 and really kind of understand how strange, I suppose, this might have been to a listener at the time. But to all intents and purposes, if, if you're buying this as a record, you might think, wow, this is, this is Dylan's direction now. He has become a country singer. Yeah, there's no doubt that it caused a stir when he did, uh, <laughs> he did go country, if, uh, if we're agreeing that's what he did. I think it's that thing that we we talked about several times before, isn't it? You know, you you think you're in one place with Bob Dylan and all of a sudden he pulls the rug out from under you. And there's certainly an element of that here, isn't there? Even if you leave aside 
the countrification of his arrangements. The contrast to John Wesley Harding is is at least as stark as the contrast between John Wesley Harding and Blonde on Blonde. Just from the complete abandonment of those um, those almost parable-like mysterious lyrics, and he's almost now singing June Moon stuff, isn't he? It, it's, a, it's a complete reversal, and it must have perturbed a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned last time about how he allegedly had a copy of the King James Bible open on the uh, on a kind of lectern in his front room. I think it's fair to say he probably didn't have a copy of the King James Bible <laughs> open uh, on a lectern in his front room while writing this one. I mean, this you don't want to suggest that these are just kind of songs that he's kind of almost throwing off with without having to think about them too much. But I mean, this is the guy that wrote Visions of Johanna. This is the guy that wrote Like a Rolling Stone. And so for him to put something fairly simplistic together lyrically, I think that the focus, as we've said before here, the thing that makes this album really tick is the arrangements more than the lyrics in many respects. I mean, like I say before, I I sound like I'm being very critical of it. I think it's a great record, but it's a great record to listen to. It's not in in the way that we try to delve into lyrics and really engage with what's what's going on what's his kind of what's his aim with this i think this is just a pleasant listen as you've said previously uh, rather than being some kind of era defining political statement <laughs> if that's not too much of an understatement yeah definitely and i i kind of think as well but maybe particularly now with all the hindsight we've got, we give Bob Dylan a bit of a pass on this album. Because I'm, I'm going to break cover here and say I don't think this is a great album. I'm, I'm not a massive fan. As I said before, I didn't listen to it a lot previously. And I was kind of looking forward to getting into it over the last couple of weeks. But actually, it's hard in my position. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it really. And Well, I say I don't like it. Of course, of course the arrangements are gorgeous. Of course, there's two or three fantastic songs on it because it's a Bob Dylan record but if we're judging it as a Bob Dylan record I don't like it and and this was what made me wonder about what he's doing really with this um countrification of the arrangements because I was thinking if if this was somebody else if this was um I don't know some parallel universe where the Beatles broke up in 1968 and um let's say McCartney rocked up in Nashville and recorded something like this you know we'd be we'd, we'd have no compunction in saying well this is a cash grab he's um he's turned up He's, um, he's, he's, he's churned out um, a few songs by numbers. He's got the best musicians to play on it and he's put it out and made a, made a fortune. And I wonder whether that was really what Dylan's doing here. I mean, he's demonstrated already that you don't have to make an album like this if you're playing with Nashville musicians. He's already broken the mold with his last two records. So if we're being kind, is this a response to what the birds have been doing? Is it like a genuine interest to get some kind of synergy with with Johnny Cash and that scene? Or is it just a question of painting by numbers and, and, uh, and take the dollars to the bank? I mean, that's kind of the million, the million dollar question, isn't it really? <laughs> literally. Um, literally. <laughs> yeah. Because let's, if, if we're being brutal and properly honest here, country music has been done a lot better than this subsequently. And it was done a lot better than this previously. I mean, you go back to like, uh, there's a 19, I think it's 1946 version of Kitty, Kitty Wells is singing um, uh, Honky Tonk Angels. It wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels. And that's, that's like country rock. That's full on country rock there. That's that, okay. So it's not called country rock there, but that's got all of the elements. Everything is there. So, I mean, Dylan is absolutely not breaking the mold here in any way. There's nothing revolutionary really about this other than his status as this, 
kind of spokesperson for a generation. I think that's what's so important about this because he is late to the party. The birds have got there first. Graham Parsons have got there first. There's a whole load of kind of satellite groups that have got there first. But his cultural cachet, I think, at this point in time is so huge that if he does it, then it instantly becomes massively more influential than when those other kind of, it would be absolutely false to call them also rounds, but those groups that have or had far less of an influence putting out that kind of music. When he does it, it's huge, isn't it? But I, I don't know. If it's a cash grab, it's a bit of a risky cash grab because he's rolling the dice here and he's kind of going for country music. Now, it's very difficult, I think, for us to remember this in in the current kind of climate. But, I mean, American radio was quite segregated at the time. And, I mean, American country music in particular, it was absolutely kind of, well, aspects of it certainly were, were very much synonymous with a particular outlook. And this was not the outlook that Bob Dylan, the protest singer, had aligned himself with. This was um, God, family, flag. This was all of those kind of very conservative kind of Republican values, really. And so if it's just the cash grab, then he's risking, I think, alienating a big swathe of his audience. And so I, I think that's, that's the thing that makes it problematic. That's the thing that complicates this idea of it being a, an attempt to make money. Yeah, that's a really fair point. I suppose the counterpoint to that is that the country market, if you want to put it in that way, and we are talking in broad brush generalisations, aren't we? We're not <laughs> suggesting that every person who listens to who listened to country music in the sixties was a, some kind of um, Republican, fire breathing, evangelical, gun toting hillbilly. But um, no, and I, I think yeah, sorry, I talk about it in those terms. I'm, I'm just gonna just gonna jump in there, and, and I'm gonna say, yeah, absolutely, uh, echo you there. I mean, it would be it would be outrageous for us to even suggest that. I will just quote Clinton Halen while I remember, because he said, with that uh, record, Bobby's uh, no, he quotes someone else. He said, with that record, Bobby's neck went from a size 14 to a size 16 and got very red. Which uh, I love it as a quote, but I mean, that is such a massive generalization. I'm sorry, I butted in there. Back over to you. No, 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 no. I, I know you weren't saying that, but it, it's just important to, to say this, isn't it? But if we are talking about the country music market, it was massive, wasn't it? And I think a few weeks after this, you got Johnny Cash doing his own uh, arguable cash grab at, uh, was it San Quentin or Folsom? Uh, it's San Quentin, wasn't it, after this? But um, yeah, you know, those records were massive sellers, weren't they? So, you know, if he did want, if he was interested in tapping into that market, then this was certainly the way to go. And he, he got one of his songs on Johnny's record, didn't he? Uh, of, of when the cash does wanted man in the, in the prison, which, which goes down an absolute storm. Yeah. So he was, he was clued in if that's where he was coming from. But I take your point. We, we don't know, do we? Um, but I think there is definitely something. Well, I don't believe him as a country singer on this album. We talked right at the start about how people had introduced him in later years and said he'd only adopted folk because that was the, the, the big thing in New York at the time. That was the way to get a record made. That was the way to get noticed. Similarly, like the protest scene, you know, they said that he would only go on a couple of marches and, you know, he didn't really believe it. But when you, when you listen to fixing to die on his first record you're hearing a guy who's steeped in folk blues when you hear Hattie Carroll or Chimes of Freedom you believe what he's saying I don't get any sense about on any of the songs on this record no I think if he was co-opting the kind of folk medium in order to further his career then he pulled 
an amazing, he pulled the wool over pretty much everyone's eyes. I mean, I utterly believe him, as did an entire generation. As a country singer, it, it, I agree, he's, he's far, far less convincing. And I think, I mean, ultimately, one of the things that, that we love about Bob Dylan as much as anything is the lyrical content. And the lyrical content here is very different to those really complex kind of bombardments of imagery that, that he's had on, on previous records. And, uh, and I think that's, that's one of the things that maybe makes it slightly less convincing. I mean, I suppose the other thing, and there's a, Chris Christopherson said that he changed the way that people thought about country music though. And that even the Grand Old Opry was never the same again after Bob Dylan. And he talked about the, in, in this particular quote, Chris Christopherson mentions this idea of, because he was around at these sessions, he mentioned this idea about how conservative the country scene was and how much of an influence he subsequently had over it. Now, I suppose that the importance of his influence is such that, I mean, arguably, him going down to Nashville and making a country record changed people's perceptions to such a degree that he kind of potentially had a fundamental influence on how country music developed. And so, he may well have not been a convincing country singer in 1969, but when you think about how the genre subsequently broadened and kind of went on to incorporate all different aspects of Americana, bluesy aspects, I mean, even like hip hop crossover stuff, there has been in, in sort of subsequent years. He arguably, I suppose, it's not about him being a country singer who's convincing, but it's in the way that he's kind of, I suppose, opened the doors to what else can be done with country as a, as a genre. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the case, but I think that it's very difficult to gauge his influence on this. I think it's easier to gauge his influence on the folk movement. But going back to this thing, is he a, is he a convincing country singer for 1969? No, I don't think he is. If you put him in a bar in the middle of Oklahoma on stage playing this kind of stuff, I think people would have appreciated it. I don't think anyone's going to have thought that's the next kind of George Jones or the next Johnny Cash in terms of the way that he's singing. Though. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think you're right. We have to separate out at least three things, really, don't we? So one, this was, <laughs> this was a very successful record. Yeah. And as we've said already, it's, it's, it's certainly a very pleasant listen. Secondly, you've got the the undoubted influence of the record. I mean, we, you can harp on about the Flying Burrito Brothers as much as you like. And I suppose, in a way, they're like the Velvet Underground of this story, aren't they? You know, um, so so undoubtedly influential on the people who came afterwards. But for the general public, the average country fan at large, it was Lay Lady Lay on the radio that was the, the big moment, that was the crossover between those two quite distinct worlds, as you say. Definitely. I think that's, that's really important to remember. There was something else I was going to say here, and I've lost it. Um, but when I've remembered while you're thinking, the third thing I wanted to separate out was yeah. um, that, you know, the quality of Dylan, Dylan's songwriting, Dylan's performances, Dylan's singing on this record, they were almost irrelevant to the other two things. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. I think at this point in time, then, one of the things that we try and think about, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of questions I'll, I'll pose to you if that's all right. But I mean... We try, <laughs> we try and crowbar a, a Shakespearean reference or two in, sometimes more successfully than other times. I think that one of the possible parallels we could make here is it's this willingness to change. It's this willingness to 
just kind of cut ties with the past and kind of go with stuff which is ostensibly quite kind of not necessarily radical but like a real kind of shift in uh, in, in approach and I think he is doing this here and I think it's it's one of the things that James Shapiro talks about in his book 1599 about William Shakespeare wanting to build the Globe Theatre and the reasons that he wanted to do that because that was seen as a bit of a maverick odd move in some respects at the time and he argues that one of the reasons that he does this is to get away from the expectations that his audience has of him really and, and, and to allow him to do his own thing with the plays that he's writing. In particular, the Globe kind of gave him control in terms of being able to kind of cut links with the more jokey kind of clowning elements that kind of have proliferated in Elizabethan theatre, particularly people like Will Kemp, who would go on stage and sort of dance jigs and things like that. And, and Shakespeare just was, I mean, we don't know this for sure, but it, it's kind of been asserted that he wanted to break with this tradition. He wanted to do something different. He was never scared of kind of completely changing his approach. And I think at risk of maybe seem, seeming like this is a, is, is a little bit of a, of a spurious link once again. Oh, oh, how unusual that would be for us. But um, I think maybe this is kind of what Bob Dylan is, is doing here. He's perfectly happy and perfectly okay with putting this record out and you know, saying to hell with it. I'll you you judge me on the quality of what's out there. Now he gets he gets away with it on this occasion. We've said it's a massive hit. It's a huge seller, and and so once again we kind of look at him and think, wow, he he had that crystal ball. He kind of knew what was going to happen. Whereas uh, it was maybe more of a gamble at the time than he might like to kind of let on. I like that line of thinking. I like the spurious links, of course. And naturally, I've got no idea how true it is. But if you follow that line of thinking, then it's almost backfired for him, hasn't it? He's, he's, he's tried to fox everybody and he's, he's ended up with this fantastically well-received record. So what does he do? He pushes even further in the same direction, which is kind of what he does on, uh, on his next album. So, but, you know, he, he didn't quite get the, the shocked reaction he was expecting this time. So he certainly got it on the next one, didn't he? But yeah, no, I like that. Well, sh- shall we get into to some of the, the songs now and pick off a few of the, the individual tracks, Rich? Or did you have any other uh, spurious Shakespearean links you wanted to throw at us before we do that? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think we should dive into to some of these individual tracks now. Um, the Yeah, I think we should dive into some of these uh, these. <laughs> What do you what do you want to kind of kick it off with then? Because I mean, we're not going to talk about all of the songs here, because some of them love Bob Dylan in the way that I do. I, I can't see them as being anything more than just kind of almost like throwaway little ditties at some of them. So, I mean, should we should we kick off with the first one? I mean, I know that you've got thoughts about Girl from the North Country because when we were talking about it on the kind of original album version, as it were. I said that I really liked it. And uh, you said that you preferred the Johnny Cash version uh, or the Johnny Cash duet. I understand, Mark, that this, over the last couple of weeks, you've sort of changed your tune on that. Yeah, I know this is going to be a tremendous shock uh, to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I I, I don't know what on earth I was thinking now, to be quite honest. You're absolutely right. I I I now think that the three-wheeling version is is vastly superior. And I think the problem is that we have been probably worth um, reminding our our legions of listeners that we are 
listening to these albums pretty much on a loop trying to recapture that kind of adolescent experience of coming to an album for the first time and also I suppose trying to capture what it would have been like to follow Dylan's career in real time and be receiving this album and, and doing that thing you do of listening to it and listening to nothing else pretty much while you're doing so. So <laughs> while doing that, <laughs> I think this song doesn't stand up very well. If you're on a three-hour road trip, as I was the other day, and this album's only about 28 minutes long, so you're listening, you're listening to this thing's coming around every half an hour. It's not great, is it? You've got the, the chemistry of Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan together. Just the idea of... Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan together is tremendous, isn't it? And there's no doubt that coming from John Wesley Harding to hear Dylan singing this marvellous song in such a different way, and then to have Johnny Cash coming in, wonderful, a beautiful start to the record. But then you start noticing how under-rehearsed it is, all the little fluffs, the bits where they're just not quite in sync. And if they'd even done another couple of takes, you're certain that musicians of this calibre would have absolutely nailed this into something monumental and they can't quite be bothered so yeah there's also a lot of repetition of verses isn't there which i think on on an occasional listen i hadn't noticed but when trapped with it in a car for three hours i certainly did notice so um yeah i'm in full recant mode here i definitely now prefer the freewheeling version but but perhaps to be fair i should take a three-hour road trip with freewheeling to see if (laughs) (laughs) if it still stands up I uh, I agree with, with with this. I mean, I love Johnny Cash. I love Bob Dylan, obviously. And the idea of them singing together is, on this occasion, so much better than the execution. I agree with all of those things. It sounds under-rehearsed. It kind of sounds like they're not really trying. And the call and response thing goes on far too long. But then they also, I think, what they're trying to do at certain points is trying to harmonise. And it's... It's not the mamas and papas, put it that way. It just sounds quite bad, really. I know that this is heresy, really, to say to say this, but it just it could have been so much better than it actually mm. was. And I think that that's it's like a missed opportunity for something that would have been absolutely wonderful. I mean, I I love the Rick Rubin produced Johnny Cash uh, American recordings. They're so wonderful. That's just him sat there really well recorded but with just an acoustic guitar and hardly anything and i i always think that's that's kind of what i want this to be whereas it sort of it just sounds a bit flabby and bloated really and yeah this obviously is a love song although it's not as straightforward a love song as as many of the other kind of love songs on this but you've got sort of there's very little compared with so many other bob dylan albums no real sort of irony or ambiguity or anger really on so many of these songs and um and i think to to kick off with this one i think it it kind of sets up that sort of lyrical tone so i I guess it it sort of works as an album opener but i think there'd have been a few raised eyebrows back in 1969 listening to this one well interesting you mentioned the lack of irony and 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 anger and all the the good stuff we've <laughs> accustomed to. There's also no humour or very, very little of it. I don't know if you, you would count Country Pie as an, a, an attempt at humour, but it, it doesn't work if it is for me. So, yeah, that's lacking too. And I guess, I mean, I'm really down on this song. And I do apologise because, as I say, I mean, it's, it is, it, there are parts of that 
that performance that are really lovely and, and powerful. But just the whole thing about what are we going to do to fill up a few more minutes on this album? Oh, we'll, uh, we'll get Johnny Cash in, we'll, we'll jam for a bit and see what comes up. And ah, yeah, you know, girl from the North Country, it's a, it's a good and we'll, we'll whack that on there. <laughs> it, the whole thing reeks of the kind of, I don't know, the kind of um, primetime Saturday night, invite a celebrity on, make them do something a bit silly. And then, you know, that's a wrap for us lads. Go, you know, we'll collect your paycheck, go and get another beer. It's, and it's also, despite the perfunctory nature of the performance, it's still by, by far, in my view, the best song as a song on the album because he doesn't rise to those heights of songwriting again on the rest of this record. Now, I know that's a bit controversial because there are some very acclaimed songs on here, but for me, that was the other thing about these songs. I mean, the average quality here is lower than on any of his other records. You've already mentioned it. I mean, I'm not going to be down on Peggy Day. It's, it's a perfectly nice listen. But, you know, come on, this is the new Bob Dylan record. You know, we're expecting we're expecting something a bit more, aren't we? Even those throwaway songs on a record like Three Wheeling or Another Side, they've always got something that grabs you, you know, some, something sharp, something funny, something spontaneous. That's something that's also lacking on this album for the most part. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty down on it, really. But what do you think, Rich, about the... The other songs on here. I mean, do you agree with me that there's, there's not really a lot of quality compared to what we've been been used to? I find them very enjoyable. In t- I mean, I think Lay Lady Lay's a masterpiece, and I'm gonna we'll talk about that one in a minute. My favourite song on here actually is Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, which I think is beautiful. I think it's really really good. I mean, writing in a country style is a different discipline than writing folksy stuff. It's certainly a different discipline than writing that very, very image kind of laden, very, very heavy kind of thing. I think there's a, there's a couple of things as well. I, I know that um, we are not, and it, it might surprise people out there, we are not by any means Dylanologists, nor would we claim to be scholars, uh, or certainly I wouldn't anyway. And one of the things that I know is a criticism that's levelled at Dylanologists uh, generally. There are a couple of them. The first one is that they kind of feel like they own Bob Dylan. And the second one is that they feel that they know better than Bob Dylan. I think we'll, we'll just put it out there that we are neither of those things. I, I, obviously, Bob Dylan is his own person. I have no kind of stake in him other than being a big fan, as is the case with you, Mark. And in terms of uh, knowing better than him, well you're on a hide into nothing if you ever think you're going to figure out what he, I mean, the man's a genius. So like, uh, I think the the fact that we're criticizing him, it's just in comparison to some of his other, other work. I think this is, a, it feels like a weak record, but I think there's still an awful lot of great stuff on here. So in a very roundabout way, it occurred to me, I, yes, there's no real humor on here, but is it that the entire album, is meant ironically as this humorous kind of <laughs> here we go i'm gonna i'm gonna make a country record isn't this gonna be hilarious and the joke backfired in as much as everyone everyone kind of thought oh yeah do you know what this is it's not great but it's pretty good let's buy a shitload of copies of it <laughs> and in that case it would if that were the case it would just prove that absolutely beyond refute that none of us really know anything about what he's doing and he's once again he's got the better of us that, that's that, that's tremendous and i mean in that case it would be the whole thing would be a, a send-up of everybody from johnny cash to roger mcquinn <laughs> exactly so therefore it's got um, more yeah. jokes on than any other bob Dylan <laughs> because the entire thing is just an extended kind of uh, um i like that i think i like that a lot more than i like the record <laughs> <laughs> 
I agree entirely with you, of course. There's, there's great stuff on here. And if even if this were my least favourite Bob Dylan album, which it, it isn't, it would still be one of the greatest things I know of in my life. So <laughs> we do have to put that out there, of course. But yeah, I just think, you know, we, we t- I talked about the album Help at the start and um, the habit the Beatles had of tossing Ringo a bone and letting him howl his way through a, a country and western tune on, on every album. And for me, stuff like One More Night is just that, really. And on one of those kind of loops of listening to this record in the car, I just heard the middle eight of One More Night in Ringo's voice. <laughs> and ever since then, yeah, I like can't, on can't... Naturally or whatever. That <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I love some of that country and Western stuff, but it's not the country of Hank Williams, of even Johnny Cash or Graham Parsons, is it? It's something approaching pastiche, I think, which is fine, but... I just don't really buy it. What I do buy is I threw it all away. I think that's a tremendous song. And I think that's more like Bob Dylan does Hank Williams pretty successfully. And as I said before, all through it, you've got these tremendous musicians who really understand it. Even if perhaps they themselves are understanding that this isn't quite the real deal and they're perhaps just going through the motions. Even them going through the motions is still more than enough to make it a a great listen all the way through. But yeah... So I, I just think, I suppose this is the core of what's disappointed me so much this time, because it is such a nice listen. But when you do come to it once every so often, it's, it's pleasant. And then you go and listen to Highway 61 or something. But when you really spend time with it, I don't think there's a huge amount there. Lay, lady, lay. Let's, let's talk about it. I mean, I, yes, it's a, it's a massive hit. Lovely to listen to again. But I just don't, I just don't really get it emotionally. I don't, I don't see what other people have seen in it. And even this um, business about it being Dylan, being uh, romantic, being sensual. I, I think there's more of that on To Ramona, which we picked out a few weeks ago. Even on Sad-Eyed Lady, there's, there's lines that are more sensual, I think. And the delivery is superior. So yeah, and then of course, you know, as, as I said at the time we talked about To Ramona, if you're going to compare it to something like Leonard Cohen, it's, uh, it's in, a, in a different and lower league again. So I don't get it, but persuade me, Rich, what's, uh, what's so great about it? Well, I really like it because I think, I mean, I think it sounds very old fashioned. I mean, I think that there's, there's a guy called Christopher Ricks likened this song in particular to, to His Mistress Going to Bed, which is a poem by John Donne. Now, very difficult to prove that, but I, I really like the suggestive nature of this. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me almost of like a, you know, the, the blazon form, which is when like uh, aristocratic men used to write love poetry that was a little bit suggestive about their... Uh, they're intended. It kind of reminds me of, of that sort of approach, really. I, I love the arrangement as well. I really like the what the guitar does. I particularly like, if we're going to go into sort of musicality a bit, the you've got the, it's in A, isn't it? You go So it goes from the A to the C sharp minor. But I like the fact that the bass line is moves down and shifts down to like the F sharp, which is like a really boring thing that's got nothing to do with Shakespeare whatsoever, or indeed really Bob Dylan. But I'm always a sucker for a descending bass line. And that I think gives it that kind of poppy quality. And I think that that is one of the things that maybe separates it because this feels more original in some ways. It feels more like a pop. I can understand why this is a pop hit essentially because of uh, I know that it's got pedal steel, etc. But it doesn't really feel country. 
it doesn't really feel like any kind of pop song either, but it, it's something that's different. But the kind of suggestive stuff in it, I mean, the a, a quote here from To His Mistress Going to Bed, which is pretty out there for 16, whatever it would have been, is uh, license my roving hands and let them go before, behind, between, above, below, which uh, is, is far more uh, naughty and suggestive than, uh, than anything that Bob Dylan's got. But he, then again, John Dunn wasn't aiming to get on the uh, kind of network radio, etc. Et I'm not a kind of mainstream <laughs> stuff. But um, I, I mean, who knows? Like, this, like I say, Christopher Ricks suggests that it might in some part have been uh, inspired by this particular poem. I think it ticks a lot of the boxes. I mean, we'll never really know. But I, I really like it. I, I remember listening to, I think I'd heard this when I was younger. And I remember thinking there was something about this that was almost like it, it had suggestions of kind of after the watershed about it. And I think that the, it's quite a sensual song, really, in a way that I don't really get from a lot of the rest of the songs on this, on this album. And it's so different to so many of the other things that he's done. I mean, it's, and I also really like the version on, uh, there's a version on Hard Rain, isn't there, on the live album, I believe, of this. Um, yeah, so that's a very rambling response that, that, that goes down lots of different avenues and probably doesn't provide a very good answer. But what, what, what do you reckon, Mark? Have I, have I convinced you? <laughs> you haven't convinced me, but I hadn't thought about it in the sense of it being such a unique song in Dylan's output before, but you're quite right. It is, it is unlike, obviously, so many of his other songs, but particularly the songs on this album, it, it, does, it does stand out in that sense. I've just never found it to be, I, I don't know, it, it's, it's so heretical to say it, but I've never, I've never found it a, a particularly lyrical song, although I know so many people do. And I'm also missing that connection that other people seem to have to the, the sensuality of it. As I say, I find that in even other Bob Dylan songs, more so than this one. So I think it's just me. I'm, um, I'm, I'm missing, I'm missing a, a part of the, the, human, uh, the human makeup that, that's necessary to connect with this. Well, I think one of the things that I thought about this was that the songs on this album, if he was sat there in 1961, 1962 in Greenwich Village, and he played these songs on an acoustic guitar off the album, I don't think too many people would have been, I think they'd have fitted into his set reasonably well, wouldn't they? As just kind of, okay, here's here's Bob Dylan doing a few kind of country-ish sort of tunes. But I don't think that, Lay Lady Lay would have fitted in. I think that would have had people's jaws kind of hitting the floor. And I think that's that's one of the things that sort of reminds us just how different it was and how much more permissive, I suppose, listeners were in 1969 versus the kind of hangover from the kind of end of the McCarthy's witch trials or whatever you want to but I mean I know that I know that Greenwich Village was a hotbed of radical thinking etc etc but um you know it's like you, you wouldn't have been able to play honky tonk woman by the stones back in the in Greenwich Village in the same way as you wouldn't have played this no I think you're right there and um I guess that suggestiveness well it's not really suggestiveness is it it's pretty full-on this is what's happening here. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no real doubt about what the laying across the bed is, uh, is, is, uh, is leading to. And, and of course, we talked before about some of the veiled sexuality in, in, in songs on Highway 61, for example. So you're right. I suppose, you know, you pays your money, and it takes your choice. Which is more radical? Is it that kind of veiled elusiveness, you know, in that kind of really revolutionary record on Highway 61, or is it this more permissive, open um, expressiveness? 
on Nashville skyline. And yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it in that way before. So yeah, I'll um, I'll, I'll mark that up as a as a, as a plus, and I'll give it another listen. <laughs> So, I mean, the other ones that we took, I mean, yeah, we've got, we've already mentioned I threw it all away. There have been some suggestions that potentially this is sort of about that kind of sense of lost, a lost Eden, a lost kind of 60s ideal. I think it's difficult to read that into it in a really kind of convincing way. I mean, tell me that it isn't true. It's very pleasant. Um, I mean, there's some, I suppose the thing about tell me that it isn't true, that the line, um, and you've been seen with some other man, he's tall, dark and handsome and holding your hand. And there's, there's a sort of a sense of ill ease. There's a sense of kind of paranoia, I suppose, about that one. But it's dressed up in a, in a, in a very pleasant tune. I suppose that one kind of echoes John Wesley Harding in that kind of respect, whereas most of the rest of these don't do that. I mean, they're, they're, just, they're, they're just fairly standard in, in, in lyrical approaches. Have you got any thoughts about that one? Yeah, I, I think of that as my highlight of the album. I think it's the best song, as with all of them, it's a lot of the performance, but I guess I, I believe in more on that song, which again ties into what you're saying. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, on such a contented album, but that's the one that, that hits home. But yeah, I think that song, and um, I threw it all away, obviously, Girl from the North Country, and Lay, Lady, Lay with the, the qualifiers that I have, those ones are the songs, I think, which stand up. The rest of it is pretty much filler, lovely filler, but still pretty much filler. Yeah, I mean, my my highlight is tonight. I'll be staying here with you. Which, oh, of course, I, yeah. I really like it. I love the sound. Love the kind of arrangement on this one. But I think this one, perhaps more than anything, we mentioned earlier on this idea of domestic bliss, domestic contentment that he's supposedly experiencing in Woodstock. I mean, I think I know he had a, a couple of of young children. I'm not sure how big his family was at this point in time. But I mean, it feels a bit like that doesn't it that kind of adds fuel to the fire i suppose of that kind of domestic bliss domestic contentment kind of um, idea and it's just like right forget everything else tonight i'm staying here with you it kind of comes back to that focus and i i like that but again I, i'm not going to go into it in any kind of really complex or or difficult kind of lyrical analysis because i i just think it's a it's a fairly nice atmospheric story-ish kind of song, really. What do you reckon to that one? You got anything? I mean, you prefer the version of it on Rolling Thunder, don't you? Yes, I think I probably do. And that's a bit unfair, really. But I suppose that's why I didn't immediately think of that one as one of my highlights, just because I do think it's a little bit overshadowed by that, which is unfair. It, you're right, it's a tremendous song. This is the thing about this album, isn't it? As we've said a couple of times, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not happy with it. I don't like a lot of it. But nevertheless, at least half the songs are Stone Cold classics. So, you know, we, we are still talking about a very good record from a, a genius performer with some of the best musicians in the world playing on it. So you can't, you can't be too dissatisfied. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I think we're probably about at the point when we, we start to think about our, our kind of last thoughts on, on this album. I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, listening back to it in the way that we have been. And I still really like it in as much as it's got a close sort of place in my heart, as it were. I think one thing I would say is that, of course, growing up where he did, when he did, Bob Dylan would have been pretty au fait with country music because, of course, they had those giant radio antennas that were i mean they, they were almost able from kind of mexico and from canada to kind of cover the entire 
continental US. And so he'd have been very, very familiar with a lot of country content here. And of course, ultimately, he was a rock and roller who decided to go folk. And then he decided to go country. But as we've already said, it's such a mishmash of genres anyway. This, again, is, is just an example of Americana, really. I have read and have heard it suggested that the kind of more twee melodies, the niceness of this is almost in itself a reaction against the pretty tumultuous events that were taking place in the US at the time. I mean, you've got things like Martin Luther King being assassinated. You've obviously had JFK's assassination. You've got Bobby Kennedy's assassination, the Melee Massacre in, uh, in Vietnam, etc., etc. Um, the idea almost that it's kind of like some kind of distraction potentially, maybe some kind of retreat almost to a kind of rural idyll. I mean, almost like uh, the, the pastoral idea of the Forest of Arden in Shakespeare, this idea of going back to a kind of more innocent time, a more childish time. I think it, obviously it's impossible to kind of prove that one way or the other. But I think that the important thing here is to remember that it's probably, while we or the listening public at the time might have thought it was quite surprising that Dylan was quote unquote going country, he, country music certainly wouldn't have been in any way alien to him, put it that way. No, I think that brings us back to where we started really, doesn't it? That, that country influence has been in rock and roll from the start. And even Hank Williams, I always think of him as a, as a proto-rock star, really. We talked about Bob Dylan as the first of a certain kind of rock star, but I guess in many ways, Hank Williams set the template for a lot of that stuff. And Dylan's on record, isn't he, as saying Hank Williams was his first hero, even before um, Woody Guthrie. So there's certainly no doubt about that influence. I guess my, my final reflection was, in counterpoint to you, really, um, you, you were talking about how this is an Americana album and the, the kind of the influence that it's had as a consequence. And I don't see that really. I, I think the, the elements of what we now call Americana, and it's a, it's a kind of much traduced <laughs> genre in a way now, isn't it? But if we, if we leave that to one side, that, that kind of exploration of Americanness and, and the various musical forms that, that mash together, I think that stuff actually comes from the basement tapes. I think that's where Dylan's contribution to this comes. And of course, then really distilled down in those first two band albums. And, you know, I really think that Grand Parsons gets a lot of airtime now, even though he, he didn't at the time. But we shouldn't forget the contribution of McGuinn and Gene Clark to this as well. I think, you know, famously, um, <laughs> McGuinn, McGuinn went out to hire a keyboard player to play jazz and ended up getting Graham Parsons and Sweetheart of the Rodeo. But he was very much, he, he very much bought into the, the country stylings on Sweetheart of the Rodeo. You know, without him, would we have had that record? Would we have had Americana as we know it now? So I think it's that. I think it's the band. I think it's the basement. I think it's you know, that, the birds and the, the skions of that group that really feed into Americana. And, and Dylan's tagging on. But as you said, it's that gravitas he had that, that really exploded it into the mainstream. And that really, for me, is where this, this album lands. But I think those real roots of, um, of both reaction to the 60s, reactions to the psychedelic landscape and the political background, those things are on the band, the basement tapes, the birds records, much more than this one for me. Yeah, I think I totally agree with all of that, actually. But I think that the, the key point there, which I'll just pick up on, is this idea of commercial gravitas, as you've said before. He was big news. And so the very fact that he did this album 
I mean, we can agree to differ uh, in, in terms of our opinions on this. I think it might well not be a great album, although obviously that's massively subjective, but I think it's undeniably a very important album. And I think as much as anything for what you said before, that idea of the commercial mainstream is so, so important here because I think what this album perhaps arguably does more than any of the other albums that were kind of, that we've, we've mentioned that, uh, that, that kind of trod a similar kind of Americana path was it kind of desegregated radio in a way that perhaps hadn't happened to the same degree previously. You had very definite kind of country music stations, you had your rock stations, you had your pop stations, and Bob Dylan kind of was able to straddle many of these. And I mean, arguably, arguably as a result of this, we ended up with the Eagles um, in the, the 70s making music for which the uh, cowboys of the LA canyons could snort coke by. But that's another story. But maybe, maybe it's got its roots. Maybe it's got its roots in this, this idea that suddenly this genre, which had been kind of very much pigeonholed, was, was far more mainstream. And it's never really gone back to that, to, to being a, a, a kind of isolated genre, I suppose. And on that note, I think we'll say thank you very much for joining us on this edition of Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. Please join us next time for self-portrait. And as always, please do post any comments, any questions, any talking points that you'd like us to discuss. You can find us on Twitter, search at Dylan American. <laughs>